Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome to Crushing Cashflow. I'm your host, Andrew Shutsky. With me today is Doug Banerjee. Doug is a real estate investor, an award-winning commercial real estate broker with Graysteel and the red-hot market of Dallas-Fort Worth. He leads a central U.S. multifamily practice for Graysteel, and he's a clearly a thought leader in the field. Doug and I actually go way back about 10 years we used to work together at Deloitte Consulting. Uh, he may or may not know he was a big reason for me getting into real estate and investing in general. Doug, what's going on, man? How are you? Not too much. Doing well. How about yourself? Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Excellent. Excellent. So let's get started. Let's back up a few years. So we, you know, we last talked probably 10 years ago. How did you get into real estate? You and I were in the technology field. What, what kind of attracted you to, to real estate and especially commercial side of things? Yeah. So back in probably 2008, 2009, a fraternity brother of mine from Virginia Tech who was born and raised in Morgantown, uh, moved back to Morgantown. He got into brokerage straight out of school and he approached me with some investment opportunities. And, you know, you and I were making decent money, you know, and, and, and decent is, is all relative. Right. But I thought at the time I was making great money at Deloitte, but mm -hmm. um, ultimately I wanted to do something I was a little bit more passionate about and started looking at these investment opportunities with my buddy, Dave, and we, uh, we invested in some deals together. First, we bought a couple rental homes in Virginia, and then we bought a fraternity house in Morgantown, which is where Dave was based. And one of the agents in his office kind of ran it by Dave and said, hey, you and Doug should look at this. This is a pretty attractive deal that you guys could turn around. And it was your um, you know, value add type property, go in, fix some things up, push the revenue. So we did that and, uh, and have grown a, a nice portfolio on the side ever since. And that, that gave me the initial itch. And as you know, you and I were flying down to DFW from 2008 to 2011. So I got very familiar with the Metroplex and decided I wanted to go all in and learn the business. And brokerage to me was the best way to do that on the forefront. And so here I am almost 10 years later, uh, brokering away. You know, I got to ask about this fraternity house. I don't recall us talking about that in the past. What was that like? How did you get involved and what was your experience? Did you, how long did you guys hold it? All that stuff. We still own it today. Oh, wow. So that was kind of our, our staple in that market. And it was 11 bedrooms, roughly 6,000 square feet. And it had always been a privately owned fraternity house. It was the Theta Chi chapter um, for 40 years. And then probably four or five years ago, they actually had an opportunity to move into a newer house. And so they did not renew their lease with us. And we had individual leases with the, uh, the students, not with the fraternity or the chapter. So it was kind of a, a unique deal where we would have anywhere from 20 to 22 um, residents in the house because they would double up in the bedrooms, <laughs> uh, very much dorm style. So 11 bedrooms, but max capacity of 22. And yeah. And we, we, but there's, there's a waiting list of, uh, Greek, uh, organizations looking for housing there. And so we had, uh, another fraternity fill it for that upcoming school year. 
and have been leasing to them ever since. And like I said, we went in and kind of the, the house had a lot of, um, it needed a lot of TLC. So we went in and upgraded the common areas, the kitchen, put new appliances in, new washer dryers. And then over the years, upgraded the bathrooms. Um, and we created a, incentives if they got to X number of, of uh, you know, brothers that lived in the house, then we would throw in an, an incentive, you know? So it's like, if you got 20 people in this year, we'll, um, we'll upgrade the kitchen. If you get 21 people, we'll, we'll do something else, right? We'll put hardwood flooring in, in your chapter room. So we did those types of things over a five or six year period. And, you know, it really made the house look a lot nicer and, and we're able to drive the rents, not, not crazy, but typically we bump them up 10 bucks a bed per year. And, um, yeah, it's been a nice cash flowing asset for us that isn't really that management intensive because we have parents co-sign and everything. Sure. There's some ho holes in the wall that, uh, get made on, on the weekends and stuff, but, uh, we have our, um, maintenance person go by the property, kind of check on it every other week and, and patch and repair anything. And, uh, you know, whoever made the hole pays for it, or if not, it comes out of their collective uh, security deposits. I really love the incentive program behind getting them to, to bring in tenants and they're, they're, they're incentivized to bring in quality tenants. That's a really great idea. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's not too dissimilar from what I, I would say a lot of our clients have been doing the last six to eight months, encouraging people to pay rent on time with, with COVID. So I know different folks have, you know, said, Hey, if you pay your rent, we're going to on time, we're going to give you a gift card, or we're going to have a raffle drawing for a flat screen TV for everybody who gets their rent in by the third, just so they can really focus their management teams can focus on the folks that are struggling to pay the rent and ideally come up with payment plans or understand, you know, who really needs the help. That's great. And for anybody listening that's looking, we're struggling with pay, uh, payment, payments from tenants could be a tactic you could use for sure. For sure. So, so back to the becoming a broker, right? So you, you're invested in some, some uh, presumably single family and you've got this fraternity house, you know, what shifted you to say, I want to do this full time. I want to become a broker and go all in. Yeah. I would say the fraternity house was really it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it I, I really look at that as kind of smaller multifamily, right? When you have um, north of five or 10 uh, tenants that are signing leases. So I, I thought to myself at the time, I said, with the excess cash flow that this can provide, if I had 10 of these, and I wasn't necessarily thinking fraternity houses, but 10 rental properties similar to the fraternity house, I, it would replace my income uh, at, at Deloitte. And so I kind of looked at that and I said, you know what, for me to scale and do something like that, then I need to really be all in in the business. And so I started interviewing and looking back in early 2011 um, for any way that I could get into commercial real estate. It wasn't necessarily at first brokerage, but once I interviewed with some different family offices and brokerage firms, uh, I decided that brokerage was probably the best way for me to really be on the front lines and, and learn the business better than anyone else before I started making significant investments of my own um, with my capital or for on behalf of, uh, of investors. 
So, so you've been a broker for quite a while. I imagine that gives you the edge with your own investments. What are you personally investing in now? Are you doing limited partnerships? Are you GPing anything, JVs? Yeah, so I, I've done a lot of limited partnerships in the past and then more recently have been on, on the GP side of things. Um, so bought some stuff in uh, Tennessee near the University of, of Memphis there um, in, uh, in North Carolina. I uh, bought some additional buildings in West Virginia, in Morgantown, where my business partner and I have continued to build a portfolio. So those 22 beds have, have grown to about 200 beds in Morgantown over the last 10 years. Uh, no more fraternity houses, <laughs> all, all student housing um, buildings, you know, in and around the campus there because location's always going to drive the demand. So anything we kind of look at or buy is, is normally going to be walking distance from um, either campus, downtown campus or the Evansdale campus, which is about a mile or two away. Um, so those are the types of things, you know, just kind of looking for opportunistic deals um, in, in different markets where I either have really solid boots on the ground, i.e. a partner that I, that I trust, um, you know, with my money and, and everything, because I know that uh, it's, it's his money too. And then, or uh, in, in a growth market, an opportunity, once again, you know, with a partner that I know or a management company that can, that can uh, run the property well. And I, it's, it's not too intensive for me other than kind of the upfront, just making sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting all our I's before uh, closing on the deal. Of course. So of all you've invested in, I assume most were our multifamily or student housing. What, what types of assets have performed the best and what would be your advice there? What would you look for again? Good question. Um, you know, the ones that I would say have performed the best have been in the best locations, right? So you always hear location, location, location. So, you know, when something like COVID hits or some sort of recession, location is always going to continue to drive demand. So, you know, everything that fortunately I've purchased uh, and the ones that have fared very well have all been in locations that are pretty much, I, I don't know, want to say irreplaceable because they're not necessarily core assets, yeah. but they're in such a location that there's always going to be somebody that is willing to pay rent to be there. And so our occupancy, even with COVID, for in the Morgantown deals, for example, um, still maintain low 90s occupancy. Um, same thing in Memphis and, and same thing in North Carolina. So very, very location driven. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's super important. Um, are you looking only in the kind of class A, class B neighborhoods? Or are you just talking more in terms of potential for population, job growth, that kind of thing? Yeah, more population, job growth. So not it doesn't have to be a class A neighborhood. You all know, look at um, lo location wise, I'd like it to be beer better. Um, not, not going into uh, the rougher areas typically. Yeah, it makes sense. So what do you enjoy most about the business? I mean, what do you, and I guess the follow on to that, what do you, what do you enjoy the least? <laughs> uh, what I enjoy most is uh, just really connecting and building relationships with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Some people grew up in the business, others like you or me started in something else and pivoted to get into commercial real estate uh, at, at some point. And so just really learning and hearing the different experiences and, 
and being an advisor for those people, because I, I kind of take the consulting background that, that you and I got at Deloitte and try to take that approach, right. And not be transactional focused. I want to, um, you know, build a relationship long-term and hopefully do many deals, you know, with, with the clients that, that I've built uh, over the years and, and continue to do good, good business with them and, and, uh, provide good advice. The thing I dislike the most, um, um, uh, it's, it, it can be a roller coaster at times, right? So brokerage or sales in general is not for the, the faint of heart. It's, uh, the, the peaks and valleys, um, can take their, their toll on anyone mentally. And even being in this big business 10 years, things happen that unfortunately kind of puts you in a, a state of mind that you're like, man, you know, I can't believe that that just happened, but sure. you learn to kind of, uh, get up, right. You're, you're going to be told no more, more than you are told yes. And just kind of move forward and, and, uh, you know, focus more on the wins than, than the losses, because all I ask for, you know, what I say is give me a shot to compete for the business. I want to see it at the table. And if I don't get the assignment that that's all I could ask for. Right. It's like, I just want a shot to compete. You're not going to win every deal, but, uh, the more opportunities you have to compete, um, you know, the more business you're going to do. That makes a lot of sense. So let's look at this from an investor standpoint. You know, if you're starting out or, you know, someone is new to the industry, we often hear, you know, especially in times of really hot markets, it's super hard to find deals. It's super hard to get your way into a deal. What's your advice for, for, for someone looking to find deals, you know, either on or off market, where should they start from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of tools out there and a lot of data. So um, depending on the type of person you are, you've got to study that market. You've got to figure out where you want to invest so that you can focus your efforts and then, you know, connect with the people that are doing business in that area. Um, brokers obviously are going to control a lot of that. So reaching out, meeting with the brokers and kind of sharing with them what your goals are, what you're targeting and asking them, Hey, what do I need to do in order to get a deal done? Um, in the competitive markets like Dallas and, and other places across the Southeast kind of, uh, where you're going to have a lot of offers on, on any given deal. I, I think it's just important, right? Building that rapport and that relationship and having, having expectations set up front, you know, hearing from the broker, what they would expect of you and how they can help you get into a deal and, and kind of going from there and, and building from there and making sure that you're being cognizant of everyone's time. Um, you know, a lot of brokers who do a lot of business obviously are on the phone with quite a few different people and have relationships, but whatever you can do to kind of make their lives easier and, and show that you can provide that level of certainty for, for closing the deal so that they advocate for you. Um, or if you're obviously working directly with the seller, you know, getting them whatever they ask for to get them comfortable. So, um, you can, you can get the deal under contract and move forward. That's great advice. And just digging a little deeper on the relationship building side, what's the, what's the best way to be taken seriously? Like, what do you look for as you're weeding through your likely hundreds of emails per day and saying, Hey, this guy seems like he wants to, to get after it. 
versus I'm going to pass because it sounds like he's inexperienced. What's, what's your tip for establishing yourself? Yeah. A track record obviously is pretty key. Um, so I see a lot of new groups out there partnering with more experienced operators, you know, on, on their first few deals, leveraging the track record. So I think that that obviously helps because then if the broker is familiar with one of the partners, um, then you're going to have a leg up, right? You're not starting from scratch. So I think track record's key. And then um, ideally getting in front of uh, in front of people uh, at a minimum, having a zoom call and kind of getting that face to face rapport. So it, it's not, you're not just another voice or another name in an email, you know, kind of building that rapport, uh, with, with the broker. That's fantastic. And that's something I've seen firsthand as, you know, if you can't get in front of them face to face, if you're not local, then a zoom call is next best thing, especially in today's environment around COVID. That's huge. So thinking about, you know, what are some things that maybe you had wished you had done differently in your career? Give me one example, maybe you, where you were crushed and, hey, I, I want someone else to learn from this mistake, either as an investor or as a broker. Hmm. As, as an investor, I would say just really understanding what your, your business goals are. So um, fortunately, I've been able to learn from, I would say, some of my clients' mistakes. And if, if I have a business plan, for example, to exit or, or refinance in three to five years, um, you know, I'm probably not going to put fixed rate financing on the property. I'll look at floating rate debt or, or, or bank options, you know, even though those may are, are typically going to be recourse, it'll give me the flexibility to execute my business plan. Whereas I've seen time and time again, folks tie up you know, 10 or 12 year fixed rate debt. And then they're three to five years into the deal and want to sell it, but there's a huge prepayment penalty. And so normally there's going to have to be a discount associated with somebody assuming that loan, unless we see the alternative scenario where uh, interest rates go up and we've, we've, you know, as crazy as it is, interest rates have just kind of continued to go down, even though five years ago when we were at 4% interest rates, I thought, yeah, this is, this has got to be as low as they're going to be. But now we're talking low threes. They are even high twos uh, there for a little bit, depending on, on the leverage and type of property. Yeah. I remember having the same conversations, like you said, five, seven years ago, thinking this is the bottom, this is the bottom. And everybody's lo locking your 30 year fix in your primary or locking your 10 year fix on the commercial side. It's yeah. just funny how things have evolved or really not evolved, I guess if you want to call it that. Yeah. And if, if you're going to hold the property for 10 or 12 years and you just want to hedge and kind of lock in that steady cash flow, then that's fine. And, and there's, you know, without kind of going off on a tangent, there's obviously ways uh, to, to make that more attractive. Cause if you have a 12 year fixed rate loan, you typically have a five year window. So if you're outside of seven years, as long as a supplemental can be supported, you can, uh, you or, or a buyer can put a supplemental loan on and leverage, uh, the deal back up, uh, to 75 LTV, but you're still not getting max leverage. If, if the deal were to support it at, at 80 LTV, like on an acquisition. That's critical. That's critical. All right. So last question for you, Doug, um, how do our listeners get in touch with you? Um, you can go to our website, uh, www.graysteel.com. That's G-R-E-Y-S-T-E-E-L.com. Um, 
and register through our website, or it can send me an email and it's just first initial D for Doug and last name Banerjee, B as in boy, A-N-E-R-J-E-E at graysteel.com. And um, that's that's probably the best way. You can also reach out to me on on LinkedIn. I, I like to connect with people there and and uh, have quite a few connections there and like to post interesting uh, things that I've read um, once or twice a week. So always happy to kind of connect through there and exchange some emails and see how we can help out. Yeah, you always have some great content on LinkedIn, especially around you know recent market trends and 2021 housing data, et cetera. So check him out if you guys aren't already connected to Doug. So there you have it from fraternity house landlord to uh, commercial power broker in the hot area of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thanks for joining, Doug. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey. And we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.